These will be the last two points in a study I called Knowing and Defending the Truth. And we're going to start, uh, we're going to close this um, next next week. If, if I have prayed appropriately and I understand where the Lord's leading us, we're going to, it's going to be to a study through the Psalms where pretty much I will just simply take a psalm and we'll do a study through that one, that single psalm every Wednesday night. Some of them, obviously, one said, you know, Psalm 19 and some of those will take more than that. I may divide them up. So we're going to be at it a while. Um, I like that because I, I know where I'm going for, for a long time. All mine take a long time anyway. Even if they're short, it just takes me forever to get through anything. But um, this will take a while. So I, I like that idea. So it would just be Psalm so-and-so, and that's what we'll do. Um, with this, I've got two more stops. They are quite similar. Um, let's, uh, we'll begin in the 18th chapter of the book of Acts. And I guess I'll read from verse 24 till the final verse of that, of that which, is, which is verse 28. Um, and in verse 24, um, Luke writes, he says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. We know a lot about. He's one of those biblical characters that we know a lot about uh, within the pages of Scripture. So Apollos is not new for our study. He had been instructed... In the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus that we knew only the baptism of John. Now, that's that question's answered for us in the next chapter, right? Down in, in verse 4 of chapter 19, Paul says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. Now, one of those things that we have going on within the Scriptures here, within the pages of Scripture, is that this Gospel we're, we're preaching now as a church, as a newly established church, born at Pentecost literally years before. Okay? A church... A, a, a new church there preaching a gospel that we know is really old. We know it's a gospel that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. But that it's, it's in pieces and revealed slowly. And now these great men of God like Paul have been tasked with sort of assembling this jigsaw of, of clues and ideas that have existed from the beginning of God's interaction with us, but we never really, Mike, understood what they all meant. We could never put them all together. And the Jews had, had taken on their own a, a thousand wrong, made a thousand wrong conclusions and deductions and had followed a thousand, to be honest with you, dead ends along the way. And I, I exaggerate when I say a thousand. It's just there's a lot of them. All right. Um, throughout the Babylonian captivity, when, when Judaism had become very um, intellectual, they'd really started to study the Scriptures in a way that, to be honest with you, we would understand. That's why when you talk about things um, uh, with, with a, that are biblically themed, for lack of a better term, we will oftentimes, with, with the Old Testament and even sometimes with the New Testament, we'll ask ourselves in certain circles, well, what did the rabbis say? Because we're getting a rabbinical Judaism. A Judaism that's not geared so much toward the priests, but a Judaism that is defined by the teachers. Of which Jesus is one of those teachers. Just the holy inspired 
perfect Son of God occupying that role for us. So it's, it's understandable for these guys, and I may be droning on, I apologize for that. It's understandable for these men to be a little unsure from time to time in their steps, a little uneasy. They didn't have the um, completed canon by the 18th chapter of the book of Acts. It wasn't all written. It wasn't all done. They also, I would remind everyone in this room, didn't have the ready access to it that you and I have. They couldn't just pick it up and look it up. Some of them may have never seen certain Old Testament books. May have never seen um, the book of the Twelve, for instance. And so we, are, we live in a luxury that comes from having an access to it, right? A post-printing press world in which anybody can have a copy of it and many of us have multiple copies. Or as I tell my kids all the time, if they ever, not just when they ask me biblical questions at school, but when they ask me any other kind of questions, they say, when you get home, look it up on your phone. Because you have access to what? All of it. Anything you could possibly ever want to know about virtually any topic is accessible with a smartphone. How the world has progressed. I was telling mine the other day, just a little, just a little tidbit. Some of y'all remember this. Do you remember typing a research paper with footnotes? I mean real footnotes. Karen, where when you got down, every time you got to a footnote, you had to make a pencil mark at the bottom of the page. And then when you got to that last pencil mark, you started typing your footnotes in. So if you typed, say, a five or six or seven page paper, it took forever to type it, right? And so if you had to, say, like they asked me about like a thesis or a dissertation my kids at school did, I said, guys, if you wrote a, a master's thesis, you paid somebody to type it for you. You didn't type that yourself. It's 50 pages long, so it'll take you forever to type that thing. You paid a professional to do that kind of stuff. Because regular folks would go mad on that. Because there's nothing worse, Pansy, than get down to that thing and realize you made a mistake. And what did you do with that page? You threw it away in the garbage can. How the world has just transformed within the lifetime of a lot of us in this room. You know... The IBM Selectric that I learned to type on was a huge advantage over the old carriage return manual typewriters, right? That you had to hit really hard. That's why people did one finger sometimes because you just couldn't hit it hard enough to make those keys do what they're supposed to do. How the world has changed. We just live in such a different world. These guys comparing, and I understand it's a, it's a weak and maybe a shoddy comparison, but for these guys... They are out there preaching the gospel based on the depth and the power of the Holy Spirit, the direct teaching of someone that discipled them, and not much else. There's a lot of fervor, Brian, but they couldn't just go back and look, could they, the way we could. So there were going to be incomplete notions that they had. I'm one of those kind of people who feels about Apollos in this point. If you credit Apollos with writing one book of the Bible, and that is Hebrews. This makes Hebrews chapter 6 make a lot of sense. When he talks about those elementary things. That what he's doing is apologizing for the fact that as soon as he got the gospel, that Jane, as soon as Apollos believed the gospel, 
He was out preaching it. There wasn't some time period in which he studied and worked things out. Apollos learned it and he went out and he was hollering it. Paul did the same thing, right? Paul is persecuting the church one day. Man, a couple weeks later, Paul's in the, in the synagogue disputing with the Jews. So fast that nobody believed him. Nobody believed he was real. These guys, Shay, didn't just sort of wait around and figure things out like we do. We're going to go out and witness as soon as we know enough gospel. Seeing as soon as they understood it at all, man, they're out telling people. To the point that Apollos has to deal with the fact in this passage that he's been telling people wrong or an incomplete truth. A very incomplete truth. And let's finish that. We know it's a baptism of, of he says in, in verse 4 of 19, that's a baptism of repentance and that in the process of that, he's telling people to believe on the one who was to come after him. John was doing this. And this is the same baptism of Apollos, the same gospel of Apollos. That Jesus was to come. And now he's here. In Ephesus, people may not have ever heard that Calvary was real. That Golgotha had been occupied by Jesus. He had been crucified. He had come and he'd risen. They were believing that Jesus, the Messiah, was to come. And he got to go in and now say, oh, by the way, the Messiah did come. He has been crucified and resurrected and ascended. We now preach an empty cross and an abandoned grave. Okay, so something's totally different now about this gospel that he is able to preach. That he doesn't know. And so what happens? Okay, he goes back here to the previous chapter. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, now these are disciples of Paul, right, who have received the full gospel. They are not separated by geography, by locale from the truth. Paul's right there. He's heard it all on the Damascus Road. He's been in Jerusalem. He's persecuted the church. He knows everything. So when he's preaching it now, Paul is preaching a complete gospel. Paul's gospel is not inferior to the apostles, because there's nothing, there's no aspect, there's no, there's no trait of the gospel that Paul has not been privy to, either by eyesight or by a Damascus Road experience that's unlike anyone else's experience, really, within the Scriptures. So Paul's here, and, and he's enlightened Priscilla and Aquila, and now they take time to do what? To teach Apollos. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately, now, here's the thing. Let me explain. This is how these people were nothing like us. We're like this, actually, in that everybody in this room, including the speaker, is incomplete. One of the problems, Brother Brian, you'll share this with me, with being self-educated within the Scriptures is, you can know too much about one thing and not know another thing even exists, right? Because we have not had a systematic training in the gospel the way you receive in a seminary, we are learning, we're self-taught. And so we can have PhD level knowledge or beyond in some things. We could literally write the book about some things that we got obsessed with. And we went out and read everything we could find about it and, and dealt with all the hard stuff. Things that people who go to seminary would never even dream of reading, we've read. And there can be some aspect out there of church history or something like that. Now we don't even know it exists. We stumble upon it one day. We feel so ignorant. 
Brian, did, I do it. We do it all the time. We like we feel like a dummy in the midst of all these people because they know this thing that we didn't even know. And we need to remind ourselves about the way you know a bunch of stuff they hadn't even thought of knowing. Because we're all on that journey and it's led by the Holy Spirit. And it's okay. It doesn't need to be incomplete. Brian, I'll pick on Brian and myself here. If I was in that situation and, and a man and a woman came up to me and said, let me teach you something you've never heard before, I would feel ashamed, Brian. I would be hurt by it. And I would probably go in my shell just a little bit. Okay, now, we're not picking on, I'm not picking on because we're all kind of like that, aren't we? If somebody walked up to you when you thought you were doing this great job and told you, by the way, you need to do this too, what would we do? Everybody's ego's bruised, right? Everybody's ego's bruised. Apparently, it does not bruise Apollos. He is so full of fervor, so full of the Holy Spirit. Listen, and when he wished to cross the cave, the brothers encouraged him and wrote the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So once again, he heard John's Gospel, right? John the Baptist's Gospel. He hears that. He practices exactly what John did, which was a baptism of repentance in which the world around him is being called to repent of their sins and believe in the coming Messiah. As soon as he finds out he's come, he's lived, he's died, he's risen and ascended, and he goes right back out and starts preaching that. There's not this time in which he goes home and pouts, which is what Tony would do, what a lot of people would do, right? He just goes right on. He just goes right on and does it. That's an amazing example for all of us. The idea that even when he was corrected, Lucas, he just does it. What's his job? Go out and preach. What does he do? He just goes and preaches. I mean, he didn't know something. Oh, well. God is a huge subject. Everybody's, when we die, there are going to be aspects of our of our theological lives that are desperately incomplete. I apologize. It's because the guy who's teaching you right now is incomplete. It's because the men who teach alongside of him are incomplete also. Our holes are your holes. But I'll tell you this, as they get filled, we bring them up. As they fill up, all of a sudden it's something brand new for you. Another challenge I've always had for the church was, I've told you this before, um, occasionally somebody will say, hey, all we talk about is this or all we talk about is that. And it's inevitably somebody that comes, you know, a couple times a month. And my response is always saying, look, we talk, we preach here constantly. Come all the time in here and see what you see. See how you find out you're wrong. You're assuming that it's always like this because you're coming a couple times a month. Come three times a week and see what it's really like. Come three times a week and see how, how Tony on a Wednesday night is way different than Tony on a Sunday morning. Come, come here and see how different things can be, right, when in the, in the different forums of the church. All right? So I, I want to take that and parlay it into something else. And that is here in verse four, in number four. If you've got those notes, if you don't worry about it. As the church, our goal must be to both prepare our people for daily life and witness and to raise up generations of missionaries and apologists. We're trying to do within this church exactly what, what the church did with Apollos. Look, I will just say this. I am so blessed to be your pastor. I am so blessed to be your pastor. You just don't know how blessed I am truly to be able to pastor a church like this with this heart, with these people in it. God has blessed me so much. But I'm going to say this. And you can say he's just being fake modest if you want to, but he's not. 
the men who preach alongside me are more gifted gifted in the pulpit than I am. All right? They just are. They just are. You've got two guys. Kyle McGee has a way of connecting with people with his voice and his mannerisms that is almost to the point of being scary. It really is. I know it's, everybody's going to make a joke about it, but here's the thing. And I said before, there's something about Kyle speaking and physically that when he reaches out like this, you feel like his hand is in your face. Like he can bridge that distance from there to there. Kyle does have to come down here to make you feel like you're really close to it. To make you feel like you're right there, like he's talking to you face to face. I have to call people out to make that connection. Kyle doesn't have to do that. He has an amazing ability to do that. To bridge that distance. It's a long way from there to there, guys. It really is. And he has a way of making it really narrow. Not in a bad way. Not in a way that's uncomfortable. But in a way that's fabulous. In a way that really connects what he has to say. Gives it a depth that I struggle to do. I've got to beat you over the head with verses. And he's able to do it in a very, in a wonderful way. And Brian is that guy. Besides the volume, the sheer volume of it. And I don't mean the voice. What I mean is, no, 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 time out, time out. It's, it's even better than that. It's even better than that. You know, I give you my notes on a Sunday morning. I really would like for these guys to do that on Sunday nights. Just because, you know... In case you're attached to the notes, you get the notes. I tried to do it one time with Brian's, and it was going to be about a two-point font. What I turn out, Brian will turn out 20 pages. It's amazing, and it's finished. It's not 20 pages of scratches. It's, it's like a chapter from a book. I'm giving you a chapter from a book every Sunday morning, but it's a short chapter. Brian's giving you a chapter from Moby Dick. <laughs> Every, su- every Sunday die he preaches. He just is. But now listen to me. It's better than that. He can then go up there and totally go off script and give you something that sounds like that is exactly what he planned to give you at that moment. Another thing I cannot do. I would, I would trip over my own tongue. I've got to write it down and really, really think about it and pray about it. Not that Brian does it, but he's so, um, so gifted in doing that. And I guess the, the point I'm making is this. Is that, why would they be here with me? If I'm the least gifted in both height and ability. Alright? If, that, if that's who I am, then why bring them here to be with me? It is exactly this thing. It's exactly this thing. Apollos, in the grand scheme of the church, is going to pastor and preach and be more important than Priscilla and Aquila. They're important people. They're mentioned, Joseph, within the pages of Scripture. But Apollos may very well have written Hebrews. May very well have written it. My point is this. There is no Apollos without Priscilla and Aquila. Alright? You getting what I'm saying here? There is... They needed... He needed to intersect with the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila to become the, the grounded in the gospel Apollos. So God brought these young men to, into my life that I dearly appreciate and need and depend on and don't want to let go of 
And along the way, there were theological teaching between us reasons why they needed me to become the great men of God they're going to become. That long after I'm forgotten, these two guys will, will just grow and prosper and flourish. But along the way, Tony's a little part of it. And that's not me in any way, just like falling on my sword or anything like that. Not at all. What it is, is Tony saying this, that that is exactly the gospel pattern. Which is, take into your life people that may very well have greater ability than you and fill up those short areas. Fill up those places where they are not... Um, they are not, not flourishing the way they need to. They're not thriving in the gospel. Do that because that's what the church must do. The church doesn't languish. The church produces. And our greatest fruit that we produce is men, are, are, are men and women of the faith who are missionaries and preachers and evangelists who go forth and do this. And they're always going to be better than us. They're always going to be greater than us. And that's fine. Exactly what we want. That's, that's glory for God. And to be honest with you, it's an amazing thing for the church. And we do that in every aspect. If you've been teaching 40 years, man, pull somebody aside into your life and teach a man how to teach Sunday school. And see what happens. See what God does to them. Pull a musician aside and teach them. Man, could you imagine this? And I, I'm, not, I'm not a musician. You guys understand that. I'm not a musician. I, I totally get it. But can you imagine being that person that teaches that kid that doesn't know anything about the guitar, just the tabs? And what you did was, with a key, unlock that aspect of their heart and their personality that's going to use a talent that you may not even know is there, right? To bring unbelievable glory to God. Unbelievable glory to God. It is what the church does. We're doing that always. We are producing generations. Remember, our success is a generational success. Our success is, is, the, is, is over time. Tony's never going to live long enough to see exactly what God's going to do in First Baptist Church minds. And that's okay. Because from glory, I will understand the depth of what God does here. And it may be in the life of my great-grandchildren. But along the way, if I'm selfish and neglectful, if I'm not, not really long-sighted, I mean really see into the depth of what God's going to do, if I'm, if I'm just self-centered and think it's got to be about me and my flourishing and what's good for me, if I'm like that, I'm going to totally miss what God does. Because, Mike, it's not more for me and you. It's for, for great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids that we never even know we're going to have. It's for people we'll barely know, but to see what God does. Look, Paul never feared the opposition, nor did he submit to their attacks. As a model for all of the church, he refuted the, Paul, refuted the understanding of the Jews by using the Scriptures to declare that Jesus is the Messiah, the only Son of God. Paul does this. Paul follows in his footsteps. And this is what he learned. What he learned from Priscilla and Aquila and from the teaching of Paul was not to be ashamed because you didn't know something. He learned to be unafraid. He learned to be unafraid. And that is... So now, finally, the, the last thing, very quickly. The call that we accept as a church is an individual and personal command to demonstrate to uh, our faith by two things. First demonstration. First demonstration, pursuing God through holiness. 
I've been talking about it for years. I'll never stop talking about it. This is the issue. The greatest issue facing the church of the 21st century, of a, twi- of a church in the 20s, right? Funny to say, a church in the 20s is will we be a holy church or not? Will our people seek God by denying, denying their own instinctual behavior? That's a big deal. It's an enormous deal. A significant portion of the church just doesn't think being holy is very important anymore. A significant portion of the church thinks the most important thing is not getting caught. It's keeping your private life private. Keeping your, your life in the darkness in the darkness. Will we be a holy church? Will we raise children of holiness and grandchildren of holiness and great-grandchildren of holiness? That's a huge issue. It's a huge issue. Because so much of the world around us is simply not holy. It's not holy. Things that Miss Dolores, we absolutely biblically know are wrong, are mainstream now. Or worse than that, they're ignored now. We just simply don't care. We don't care what the scriptures say. The other one is bold proclamation. Now, I think they go hand in hand. And Miss Kathy, the reason I say that is this. If I'm living an unholy life, I'm never going to boldly proclaim the word. Deep, deep, deep down, nobody wants to be a hypocrite, do we? When I know I'm doing things I'm not supposed to do, it is always going to hold back my proclamation of the gospel in my personal life. It's always going to hold it back in my public life. It's always going to do that. So, so we as a church, and I mean from the oldest to the youngest members, from the oldest, from, from, from family to family, we must do this. What we must do is rededicate ourselves to an idea that we're going to be a holy people. We're going to be a set apart people. Uh, Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.15, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. It's our presentation of our profession of Christ. Two matters are evident in this verse. First, struggle as a man or a woman of God to demonstrate His approval of your life and ministry. We are always... Brother Rudy, I, even at my age, even with my length of service in this church, must struggle every single day and every time I come before people to prove that I am approved of God. There, there never comes a day in which I get to rest on my laurels. There comes a day in which I get to just say, oh, well, it doesn't matter anymore. It always matters. It always matters. And do this primarily by way of work. How do I demonstrate who I am in Christ? By what I do. Missions, evangelism, service, love. Every aspect of our lives proves or disproves our faith in Christ Jesus. And I think there's one of those things that maybe, maybe you've never done this. I remember much, much younger in the faith, in my 20s. And I had a very perverse notion, Brother Brian, and that was that somehow Sunday belonged to God, but Saturday belonged to me. Alright? That somehow God, God tolerated brief interludes, or Miss Jane, vacations. That God didn't really care if every once in a while I let my hair down. He didn't really care if every once in a while I did things, uh, Mike, that I knew he was ashamed of. 
We're, we're in a pretty desperate situation when what we call fun, Jesus died to save us from. And when I have to include in my life something that I know He was crucified for. And, and I, while I know I had it in my 20s and I can, enunci- I can speak of that now, I, I'm fearful that for the church, it's not always as clear as that. We have a way of rationalizing and compartmentalizing things. That this is, this is a matter of, this is church, but this is secular. We have what, what some pastors call that sacred-secular divide. I've got a sacred life and I've got a secular life. And that God's okay with that. And that Jesus died to purchase it all. Jesus died to purchase every moment of my day. Not just my freedom from bondage, but my liberation into His glory. So that I'm not free to do as I want. I'm free to do as He wants. I've been turned loose from the bondage of sin so that I can now pursue Jesus with everything I am. And that the issue we have is that there are far too many believers who are operating in the midst of that sacred-secular divide, operating in the midst of that lie, that delusion, that says somehow they can have the world and have Christ. And it is a, it is a, it is a lie from the pit of hell. Because we cannot have both. And I'll be blunt with you, we will not have both. What's the answer? Correctly handle the Word. If I'm truly in touch with the Word of God, if I deftly apply it to every facet of my life, I will not do this. I will not be ashamed. The Word active and living in the life of a believer precludes any opportunity for the flesh. Let's pray. Father God, I adore you and I thank you and I praise you. Father God, I ask you, please God, to bless me at this time, Father. Because God, I need it, God. I'm low on energy, Father God, and I'm low on enthusiasm and I'm low on patience, Father God. Not just with with work or the people there, there that I care about, Father God, but the ones I care about here. And so, Father God, I repent of that now, Father God, and I rely on you completely. That even in the depths of, 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 of aches and pains and, and, and the problems of, of life, Father God, you are still good and you are still master, Father. I pray, God, that I will not forsake you, Father, for the convenience of, of, uh, of feeling sorry for myself. So, Father God, I pray that now, God, in, in front of my family that I dearly love. And I pray, Father God, that for any of us in this room, Father God, to feel the same way, feel like we're just God clutching at the end of that rope, Father. I pray, Father God, for your delicate hands beneath us. And I pray, Father God, for the power of your word within us. That there's, there's, there is energy and there's enthusiasm and there's power, Father God, in our lives. And it is right there, Father. It is in the word. Bless us now, Father God. We thank you. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.